welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi and the Sigur Center for Asian Studies at the George Washington University Washington DC I Simi Mehta welcome one and all to what is going to be an enthralling session on border disputes in Sino-Indian relations, past, present, and prospects. Uh, border disputes between India and China is not new. In fact, there have been several skirmishes between the two countries in the past. However, the most recent confrontation between the Indian Army and the Chinese People's Liberation Army created a blot in the almost peaceful coexistence where wherein no Indian uh, soldier was killed at the hands of the Chinese in the past four and a half decades. Um, since April this year, things have been a little different. The entire stretch along the line of actual control in the Ladakh region has uh, witnessed a worrisome hardening of Chinese positions. Uh, there has been a mutual understanding between the two nuclear armed nations, uh, neighbors actually, that their troops will not use firearms in the contested and inhospitable Himalayan region. Uh, but the latest standoff shows a considerable shift. Previous incidences of uh, pushing and punching gave way to the use of sharp stones, use of uh, baseball bats, barbed with wires and nails from the uh, Chinese side against the Indian army. And that too, after the sundown. Postmortem reports of at least 15 martyred Indian soldiers showed the cause of death as a mix of head injury, severe bruises and drowning as their bodies were recovered from the Galwan River. In fact, this time China has sought to interfere with the status quo and the theater of military tension includes the Galwan Valley, Temchok, Dolat Beg Oldi, Hot Springs, Four Fingers at Pangong So and the Nakula. Uh, there are several dimensions to the border disputes between India and China, and today's webinar would seek to address this. I'm excited to introduce to you the expert panelists for today's discussion. We are extremely fortunate to have Ambassador Nirupama Rao, who is one of India's best-known diplomats. She joined the Indian Foreign Service in 1973, and during her four-long decade uh, four decade long uh, diplomatic career, she has held several important agreement uh, assignments. Madam was India's first woman spokesperson at the Ministry of External Affairs, New Delhi. She was first Indian woman high commissioner to Sri Lanka and first Indian woman ambassador to People's Republic of China. Ambassador Rao was India's foreign secretary from 2009 to 11 and India's ambassador to the United States from 2011 to 13. Post-retirement from active diplomatic service, she entered into the academic world and has been a fellow at several universities like the Brown University at Rhode Island, the New School at New York, University of California, San Diego, as well as in the Wilson Center, Washington, DC. Ambassador Rao has received several awards and recognitions and was also listed among the 100 most influential women on Twitter in 2012 by foreignpolicy.com. 
Ambassador Rao is currently completing her book on the diplomatic history of India-China relations between 1949 to 62. Thank you very much, Ambassador Rao, for joining us. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Kylie Gardner, a non-resident fellow at the Sigur Center for Asian Studies at the George Washington University. He's also an associate at the McLarty Associates, a strategic advisory firm. Kylie holds a PhD in South Asian and international history from University of Chicago and received a distinction for his dissertation on the history of Sino-Indian border disputes. His first book, The Frontier Complex, Geopolitics and the Making of India-China Border, 1846 to 1962, is forthcoming with the Cambridge University Press. Thank you, Kylie, for joining us and for your proactive support. We are delighted to have with us Dr. Anit Mukherjee, who is the Deputy Head of Graduate Study and the Assistant Professor in the South Asian Program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, Nanyang Technological University, Singapore. He holds a PhD from the School of Advanced International Studies, SAIS, John Hopkins University, and a postdoctorate from the Center for Advanced Study of India, University of Pennsylvania. He has been affiliated with the Institute for Defense Studies and Analysis, IDSA, in New Delhi, Brookings Institution, and Rand Corporation. He continues to be a resident visiting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania and Brookings, India. He is the author of the book, The Absent Dialogue, Politicians, Bureaucrats, and the Military in India, published by the U Oxford University Press in 2019. His articles have been published in the New York Times, Indian Express, Journal of Strategic Studies, and several others. He has also served in the Indian Army. Thank you so much, Anit, for joining us today. And finally, we have Dr. Deep Pal. Thank you, Dr. Deep Pal, for joining us. Dr. Deep holds a PhD from the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. He's a non-resident fellow at the National Bureau of Asian Research. He holds a master's degree in international affairs from the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University and has worked with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, at Washington, D.C., and also at the Institute of International Relations, Taipei, in Taiwan. Deep is an experienced broadcast journalist and has worked for the most watched TV stations in India, including Times Now, Tak, CNBC Awaz, etc. Dr. Pal has specialized in the study of the complex dynamics guiding the Sino-Indian relationship since the mid-20th century. He's an avid writer and frequently contributes to publications such as Foreign Policy, China Brief, The Diplomat, The Wire, Lightmint, etc. So with this, we now come to the moment we have all been eagerly waiting for. I would request uh, the respected panelists to make their opening remarks for about seven to eight minutes, following which we'll have some time for an interaction between the panelists, and then we'll move on to the question and answers, and then conclude by the vote of thanks. On a side note, I also request the participants to use the chat box to write their questions and identify the panelists to whom the question is posed. Thank you very much. I invite Dr. Kylie Gardner to make his opening remarks. Kylie, over to you. Thanks, Simi. And uh, thanks uh, to my co-panelists and 
the team at uh, Impri for organizing this event. Um, very much looking forward to the discussion uh, and honored to uh, be a part of such a distinguished panel. Um, given the expertise of my co-panelists, I think I can probably best start this conversation off by providing some of the deeper historical context to the border dispute um, to help shape our, our discussion. And I think these fall under two broad historical points. Um, the first concerning missing borders uh, and the second concerning the complications brought about by the legal continuity of states. Um, you know, often it's, it's uh, the historian's role in conversations on current events uh, to say something to the effect of, uh, it's complicated and it's more complicated than you think. Um, but actually, at least at, at the root of, of um, the, the Sino-Indian border dispute is, is a fairly simple problem. Um, and, and that is that for much of the Sino-Indian uh, Sino border, there isn't a border. Um, there's not a mutually agreed to demarcated border. And, uh, and so while events like the, the tragic violence in the Galvan Valley uh, two weeks ago, um, you know, will raise questions about whether this or that lies on, on one side or the other of the line of control, the bigger issue still remains and one which has, uh, goes back uh, well before 1962 and well before 1947 is that there simply has never been an accepted border uh, in, in the Western sector, um, which I take it will likely focus on today, but also in the Eastern sector as well. Um, and this brings in a, uh, and is largely the, the, the fault of a third actor, um, no longer present, uh, but still very much here, and that is the British Empire. Uh, the British Empire spent um, near, uh, over a century uh, attempting to determine a border in Ladakh, um, and did so through developing boundary-making principles, surveying, building roads, mapping, um, and this was driven largely by the concern of avoiding Russian encroach encroachment. Um, secondarily, uh, also concerns over, over uh, the Qing Empire, but um, for the British in the 19th century, uh, the primary geopolitical concern uh, was that of Russia. And, um, and they did so uh, and addressed uh, Russian encroachment through, through uh, attempts to map borders, but also um, create buffer states to help um, as best they could uh, insulate uh, British India. And in the process, the Ladakh, which um, was historically a crossroads, uh, really found itself increasingly uh, in the role of a, of a frontier. Um, now, as to give just a sort of 30 second backstory to um, to the history of Ladakh here. Um, I'm sure many of you know this, but uh, Ladakh was, was conquered in 1834 by the Dogra Raja of Jammu, uh, Gulab Singh, who was later given Kashmir uh, by the British East India Company uh, following the defeat of the Sikh Empire. And immediately uh, in 1846, the British set about um, uh, establishing boundary commissions in an attempt to start to uh, demarcate a border and map it. And uh, the commissioners were tasked with uh, using the, the water partings, um, 
the limits of the, the watersheds in the region uh, as lines that could you know, be <clears throat> seemingly straightforward to map and um, were unlikely to produce disputes. But as the more surveying that, surveying that they did, the more complex things got. Um, and, this, and, and this was really a, a process that, that went on, on and on. And partly this was because Ladakh, for all of its history, never had historical border lines. It didn't really need them. It, um, it's a region surrounded by, uh, by passes. In fact, the name itself, Ladakh, means land of passes. And so the, 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 uh, the need for border lines really came into play only when, when uh, the region's rulers needed to present a map to show to other potentially encroaching empires that this is our, this is our line. Now, surveys, uh, particularly one done in 1865, generated maps of pretty substantial confusion. Um, and this continued up into to 1947, which brings me to the second point about, uh, about the, the continuity of claims by prior states, um, which complicate things. I mean, China, Chinese claims, go back to the period of the Republic of China, they go back to the Qing Empire, and they're further complicated by the historically ambiguous status of, of Tibet. Um, similarly, Indian claims um, go, go through uh, British India, its many princely states, and in the case of, of the now sort of doubly erstwhile princely state of, of Jammu and Kashmir, um, you have, um, you have Ladakh, um, which itself, as I, as I mentioned, um, never really had historical um, border lines, although did have border points. So this, uh, you know, while, while India quickly reshaped itself after its hard-won independence in 47, the colonial legacy here really did endure, um, both in the Western sector and, and the Northeastern or the, the Eastern sector. And I think a lot of the, the practices that the colonial government established are still seen today in the form of uh, road, um, uh, road making and um, surveying and restricted, um, restricted access to sensitive border re regions. So there is, there is a very active colonial legacy still playing out here and one that you know, that, that I think is, is important to make note as we move forward and think about maybe what, you know, what can in fact be done from a, from a, a policy perspective. So I'll leave it with that. Um, I'm also happy to weigh on more recent uh, historical events, but I think that one of the aspects that's often, um, that's often missing from, from debates um, on the border dispute is, is precisely just how far back uh, these issues go and the time scale here. So, um, and as any historian can tell you, that gets pretty complicated. Sure. Uh, thank you. Uh, am I audible? 
Yeah, okay, great. So thank you very much, Kylie, for your uh, initial remarks. Uh, now I would request uh, Dr. Deep to go on and take the stage and uh, make your uh, inaugural comments. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Simi. It's great to be here uh, uh, with Ambassador Rao and uh, Anit as well as Kyle. And, um, thank you for uh, having us uh, in this uh, very topical and timely uh, 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 webinar. Uh, so my comments are going to be uh, looking at three basic points. I'll be starting at uh, looking at uh, what is happening at the LSE and the Galwan issue and all of this. I'll try to frame it more in terms of uh, how this fits into China's global ambitions. Uh, from that, I will come and look into what this means for the region, for South Asia, for India's immediate neighborhood. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, finally, I will uh, try and uh, give out a couple of pointers on uh, what this means uh, for India. So the first point, as far as uh, understanding the LSE or what, it, what happened at Galwan or what is happening at Pangong, so uh, or, or the other uh, places where uh, there is currently uh, some form of a standoff between the PLA and, and uh, the Indian Armed Forces that is going on, what we need to understand is how this fits into uh, China's global ambitions. Now, there is a, a tendency to look at uh, uh, this from the Indian standpoint as a sui generis event. And uh, I think that there is a mistake if, if we look at it only as this. Now, the, the, if we go back into how China sees itself or how it articulates its position in the world, there are a couple of these uh, goals that were articulated some years ago when Xi Jinping came to power in, in 2012. Soon after that, he talked about something called the two centenary goals, which basically uh, they form uh, the basic foundation of, of his legacy uh, and, and for achieving something that they called the China dream or the Chinese dream. It's an ideology that was, was advanced by Xi Jinping right at the outset. Now, the first centenary goal uh, uh, envisages PRC emerging as a moderately prosperous or a Xiaokang society by, 20, uh, by uh, 2021, uh, which is next year, and also the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, uh, this and, and the second uh, centenary refers to the centenary of the PRC, which is in uh, uh, 2049 by which uh, China, they expect, will be a strong, democratic, civilized, harmonious, and modern socialist country. Now, 2021 is next year, and uh, there are these certain goals that Xi Jinping expects or, or has to deliver to the Chinese people by next year, which will involve being moderately prosperous. And the, however, if you look at what has been happening in China, both internally as well as externally, the entire coronavirus pandemic has uh, obviously affected the economy to a point where prosperity, at least of the kind that they have been used to uh, with economic growth in the last 30 years or so, is not something that is very easily sustainable. Uh, additionally, uh, it is possibly fair to say that today China is, uh, uh, has, has uh, been cornered by a number of countries, more countries than any time in the recent past, uh, over their role in the pandemic. And, and as all of these things happen, China can see itself in various kinds of trouble. And, and the entire question of reaching the first centenary goal next year becomes questionable. So the, what we see happening in, in China right now or on, on, the, on, the, uh, uh, on the LSE right now is a part of this broader canvas. We are seeing China have a number of issues with a number of countries because China right now wants to see this moment when uh, the entire world is distracted by the pandemic as a kind of opportunity to emerge 
on the global stage as the unquestioned leader. For one, uh, we, we have seen them open many fronts across the world, right? Usually we have seen China concentrate on one or two fronts, which is not something that we're seeing right now. Apart from the issues with India, we are seeing them having issues uh, with Canada, with Japan, uh, with the national security uh, uh, legislature in uh, Hong Kong. We are seeing them have issues with Taiwan. And above all, we are seeing relations with the United States come to a point where we have not seen them uh, to be there in the last many, many years. Now, along with this, there is also this understanding that China sees the United States as firmly in retreat in the international arena, which leaves a kind of a strategic vacuum with the, which the PRC believes that it is ready uh, to occupy at this point in time. Uh, they have seen uh, the US most recently retreat from the WHO and China is advancing its own model of a kind of a multilateral arrangement in the form of the health silk road that will take over uh, that, that point in time. So this is, this is largely what uh, the global ambition, the Chinese global ambitions look like right now. Now, as far as uh, India's neighborhood is concerned, this basically means that we will uh, see China spread itself far across India's neighborhood far more than it has uh, uh, so far. Now, over the last few years, we have seen China build close relations with uh, all of India's neighbors. We have seen them with uh, relations with Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, um, the Maldives, uh, Pakistan, of course. And uh, one large part of this has been the BRI, but also otherwise they have uh, started being closer uh, to these, to these uh, various states. Now, that basically means that uh, in, in future incidents uh, between India and China, it is possible that we will see the neighbors uh, also involved in some ways or the other. It is, uh, it will possibly be in ways that India will not like. We have heard the chief of army staff recently uh, talk about how uh, Nepal's issue with the entire Kalapani issue um, may have had someone else behind them. Whether or not that is correct, whether or not that is the case is immaterial, but there is a growing perception that China will want to be present in all of these uh, countries and the various kinds of decisions that, that they make increasingly. Now, the problem with that is uh, uh, India may not like this, but there is uh, very little that India can do in uh, these various uh, sovereign, sovereign entities uh, ex uh, expressing their right to have options uh, in, in, their, uh, in their internal as well as external issues. Now, what does this mean for India? Uh, the, the first thing that we must understand is that the uh, India-China relationship has irrevocably changed after the incidents in Galwan in June 1516. Now, we saw over the last uh, 30 years or so, a whole host of measures being put into place um, uh, since uh, uh, former Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi's visit uh, to Beijing in 1988. I'm sure Ambassador Menon will talk about that at some point. She was, uh, she also visited uh, Beijing at that time. Uh, but the rapprochement that we saw come about as a result of that, which resulted, which, which also brought about a number of agreements and confidence building measures between 1993 and 2013. All of these are basically uh, uh, under question right now because uh, what we are seeing happen in uh, Galwan, what has happened at the LSE already, uh, brings about a very basic trust deficit, which uh, questions every move uh, uh, between the two parties. The same goes for uh, the special representative level talks for settling the boundary question that have been going on, which have had over 20, 
22 rounds of uh, talks at this point in time, but uh, they will also be uh, uh, under question right now. Uh, it also means that India will have to, at some point, take a decision on whether or not they want to tiptoe around China, uh, uh, give the idea that India is not interested in encircling China in any way, because clearly that is not something that uh, China has believed so far. Now, this is a time when Indian policymakers will have to look around the world and possibly strengthen partnerships, uh, which may have already started with bringing Australia into the Malabar exercise. Uh, there will have to be a lot of other permutations and combinations that Indian uh, policy, uh, policy members will have to look at right now. As far as the boundary question is concerned, um, it is unlikely to be solved uh, anytime soon. China has so far not seen any benefit in resolving this. They have possibly thought of this as a counter to their perception of India meddling in the Tibet issue or in the Dalai Lama issue. Uh, and, and they have not resolved it. In, in, uh, so they have shown no interest in resolving it uh, uh, so far. What they might want to do after this is uh, basically try and resolve it in a way in which it works to their advantage. Uh, for example, today, uh, take Aksai chain, uh, tomorrow ask for Tawang and so on and so forth, which basically would be their version of thinking that this essentially undercuts the possibility of any kind of Indian meddling in the Dalai Lama issue or in the Tibet issue in future. So I'm going to uh, stop with that for the time being. And I'm happy to uh, take forward any of the issues that I have brought up uh, uh, further on. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lee, for your uh, insightful uh, comments. Um, I invite uh, Dr. Anit Mukherjee to make his uh, inaugural comments. Thank you so much, Simi. Uh, it is good to be here. Uh, firstly, I apologize for my back for the Zoom background. I had a bet with my son and I lost a bet and I had to put up the Toy Story thing as a Zoom background. I mean, I didn't know that Pluto is no longer considered a planet. So I don't know the things which are occurring in the world these days. Pluto, as, as I was growing up, it is a planet. It's not, a, it's not one anymore. So I apologize about the Zoom background. Um, I'm, I'm not an expert on China. Um, and although I've read a lot of the WhatsApp forwards and if we go by the public discourse in India, that should kind of qualify me as an expert on China. Um, I think six weeks ago, I was an expert on the COVID epidemic because I read a lot of WhatsApp forwards too. Before that, I was an expert on race uh, issues all over the world because again, a lot of WhatsApp forward. But again, I say this as, as, as a person that I'm not an expert on, on that country. So I'm gonna keep, uh, and I'm not gonna talk about the tactical picture on the ground because I think there's a lot of speculation about the tactical picture that is happening on the ground and there's, and it's still extremely unclear. But I'm going to do, which is, I'm going to ask a little bit of questions about the issue that I think we need to think about. And I have prepared a PowerPoint. I'm not sure if I can share it though. Um, is there a way to share the PowerPoint? No, I should have told you about that before Simi. Um, but anyway, okay, I'll go ahead. Um, I, I just tried to share it and I was told that it's been disabled. Mm -hmm. oh, yes, yes, um, uh, we can have that. Uh, yes. Anshula, so, if you could just make Anit the co-host, he'll be able to share his screen. Thank you so yes. much. I should have I've enabled the screen share. Yes, I yes, have. yes. Uh, so let me start with the first question, which is, um, um, uh, which is the what question, right? Which is, um, what is happening? 
the first thing that I think we need to admit upfront is there's been a change of status quo budget. Right? For a long time, the discussion, at least in April and May, was has anything changed? What we do now is decisively is China did change the status quo. They changed it primarily by large-scale deployment of troops. And I'm not going to get into the controversy right now about Galwan Valley if they have occupied petrol point 14 or not. But as we speak, there is a speculation if we still have access to, to PP14. As we speak, there's still controversies about do we have, we have access to the finger eight area, which was sort of disputed. Um, I do not know enough about the facts on the ground if we can claim some sort of control or, um, over the area from finger four to finger eight. But questions are being asked about unilateral Chinese decisions to change the facts on the ground by deploying troops and constructing bunkers, um, which is what triggered this crisis off. So that is the big what question. And then as we are all aware, there was the clash on June 15th, on the night of June 15th, in which we lost 20 soldiers. We are still uncertain about, about the number of people that they have lost. Um, but it was the first time we had a bloody border since 1975. So I think it was a sort of, it was a knock on the complacency which had set into this sort of, that it is just about fisticuffs because it was completely unexpected. Um, I don't think anybody expected it to turn so violent and it was a nightmare scenario for a long time. I think those people who have been studying the border have been arguing that look, if, if blood is shed, if somebody dies, it will create an emotional pressure that will force both governments to take a more hard step. And I think from this, we get the big unknown, which is, has China taken over supposed gray zones? Again, as I said, I'm not really an expert on the border dispute, but as far as I understand it, there are so-called gray zones, which, is, which was claimed by us, not occupied by them, or claimed by them, and we did not occupy it, and that was the so-called buffer. But what seems to have happened, at least in two places now, in the Galwan and perhaps even in the Pangong Lake area, and again, I say this with all about perhaps, right, because I do not know the tactical pitch on the ground, is that China has supposedly made unilateral changes to the ground situation. So that's the one. Second was the why question, right, which is the why question that a lot of people have been sort of debating over. Deep just spoke about an aspect of the why question. There have been other attempts at answering why has China done so? And there have been arguments about since India changed the administrative arrangement after the revocation of Article 370, it created a lot of turmoil um, in Beijing and they did this to send a signal to India. There have been other arguments about infrastructure that India's, uh, as India has improved its infrastructure that has created a blowback. So they are doing this to sort of give a fait accompli to the Indian kind of armed forces. Third is about in the international image. Deep spoke a little bit about that, that look, it could be an attempt by China to permanently show itself as the Asian hegemon. Fourth is perhaps this could be also a factor of domestic turmoil within Chinese politics, right? There have been a bit of speculation that look, there is some sort of a domestic turmoil and this is the best time for, for, kind of, um, for people to create an external crisis so that people will go around the flag. And fifth is Xi Bin Xi Jinping, which is, you know, those people who say that China is an expansionist country is just doing this because it's a part of it being evil. And sixth is etc. You could find another reason. 
there have been all these types of speculations, but why questions are inherently difficult ones. So I have kept six as etc. because perhaps we will have another explanation day after tomorrow because why questions inherently, they're important to answer. I, I mean, I'm not saying we should not try to attempt the why question, but inherently the why questions are difficult to answer because just to give an example, even now historians are still divided about the exact causes for the 1962 war. Some people say it was India's Tibet policy. Some people say it was India's alignment with the US. Some people say it was domestic turmoil in China. And I do not think even if somebody does something, they really will give the real underlying reasons why they're doing it. So although I, I completely accept that it's an important question to take on, I also think it's a very difficult question at this point of time. Perhaps the why would be known or would have been communicated um, to the more senior officials in India. But in the public domain, so far as we know, we are not very clear. So third is how should India respond, right? So we have the what happened, the why happened, and I'm not very clear about the why. I don't think anybody can be at this point of time with the facts that we have on the ground. And the third is how do we respond? This first aspect of it is the military response. Now this gets people either excited because they want fighting to break out or it causes concern among people because they don't want fighting. So in terms of what India should do in, in terms of the armed forces, there are three clear cut options. One is use force to restore the status quo, right? which is what you use the armed forces for. Um, they are trained for the job, they are prepared for the job. So, so just to put down the line and say, we are going to use force to restore the status quo. What this looks like is highly uncertain. Do we break the agreement to not open fire? How do you throw out the Chinese troops from the already occupied positions? Will it cause escalation? Will it cause violence? So all those are uncertainties. Two is do a tit for tat operation, which is do unto them as they have, they have done unto us, which is perhaps try and consolidate facts on the ground where it is disputed or is, it is not controlled. Except I don't know enough about terrain and tactics and deployment to actually, um, to actually say if this is even a viable option. Three is to maintain the status quo and just go with the assumption that this is going to be a long, this is going to be a crisis with a long duration, which is this is going to play out over a long time. It is not going to play out over our TV screens tomorrow or next week or next month, but this could be a multi-year deployment, right? That this is a long struggle. So that is the three options that I think we can use about the use of force. Beyond that, I've clubbed the two other options. One is diplomatic and strategic. Diplomatically, as Deep has insinuated, is this sort of a very significant um, turning point in India-China relations? Are the previous agreements that we have on the border agreement of, you know, this is the way forward to solve it, are they null and void? And there have been some ex-NEA officials saying this is a breach of trust. This is not how we we thought it would go, and this could be a watershed in India. And you have seen arguments about that there's an entire generation of Indians who are growing up to again think of China as an enemy. Um, and so that was the diplomatic aspect. What about the strategic aspect? Will India drop its hesitation around strategic autonomy? Right? About this thing of, oh, we are not in the great game, we are friends with everybody, or should in should India more? strongly take a leading role in, in if not helping build uh, anti-China block, but also say to China, look, the, the, there are strategic costs to your tactical actions. 
that you might think you might gain 100 meters in the Belgong Valley, or you might gain four fingers of the Pangong Lake, but there are strategic and diplomatic costs for that action that would be sort of visited upon you in terms of how we think about engaging with you. So India has to raise the stakes here. Um, I'll end with the last slide, which is the larger questions. So not in my personal life, but professionally, and as someone who has examined organizations, I love crises. Because I think crises are enablers of change. And we've seen that with India's economic crisis in 91. I studied that with the 1990 war, where I saw that there was an entire amount of discourse before the Cargill War about how India needs to reform its military, about its Ministry of Defense, about its structures, about and there was an entire debate that I saw that was happening for the last 10 years before 1999. And it took the Cargill War for us to actually say, let's create the Cargill Review Committee, let's create the group of ministers report that made some changes. In the same way, it took the 2008 attacks in Mumbai for us to create the NIA. I would like to hope as a citizen, it's my wish that we use this crisis so as to speak to actually look deeper at what what are the changes that we need to bring about to actually match with this two-front threat? Because there's been a lot of, we have to match this two-front threat. But I think in terms of really, um, you know, putting it as a national effort, we need to do a lot much more. And what does a lot much more look like? I'm gonna take a couple of guesses. First is there's been this perennial complaint about, about systemic deficiencies. Among the things that was unusual about the LSE, I thought, and this was something that was made clear, very clear after the 2008 GOM report. They said one border, one force. The one border, one force, as I understand it, and I could be incorrect, in the LSE was the ITBP. And one of the complaints is that the ITBP and the army does not, I mean, they get along well on the ground, I'm sure, tactically level, but does it create, let's say, information asymmetries? ITBP is under MHA, army is under MOD. How is this transference happening? I don't know. But there have been complaints from army officers that that's probably not the best way to go about doing it. This is not the time for finger pointing. I completely accept the point. This is the time to actually face the crisis. But also at some point of time, we need to ask deeper structural questions about how we have been operating and whether we could have done something to prevent this crisis from happening in the first place. I'll give another example. We talk about the infrastructure development. To give this government its credit, since 2014, according to a lot of the reports, they have significantly enhanced infrastructure development along the borders. The question needs to be asked, could that not have been done after 2000? Can we again take a really dispassionate look at how much was the road construction that was going on from 2000 to 2014? How many kilometers a day? Did we, did we sort of um, did we not pay attention to that issue back in the day? If, if not, why not? Was there other concerns? What were the concerns? And again, I say this without pointing a finger at anyone. I say this because I think it needs to be addressed. Thirdly is the military's own internal capabilities, right? I mean, among the, among the question that needs to be asked is if you look at the Chinese deployment, they can bring light tanks on the ground. We have heavy NBT tanks. Has anybody really thought about should we should we get a, get, a, get a brigade of tanks that can actually operate well in that particular region, in that particular terrain, in that particular altitude, which is not heavy tanks? Is this even a factor? I'm taking a wild guess. 
But is this even a factor that we should think about? Also, I, I think even in terms of if you look at the Indian Armed Forces, there's been a really decline in how much we are spending on the Indian military. And even if you look at the expenses, 28% of them are taken up on pensions, 32 of them on wages. We cannot modernize the military if more than 50% of your budget is taken up by manpower. And something has to be done about the pension bill. And I think if you have to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs. Now, this government tried to do it by creating a CDS and a DMA, but that happened as late as December last year. Right? So they are faced with its first wake up crisis. Uh, this should have happened perhaps midway through the first term of the Modi government. Perhaps it's a little too late. Lastly, is a more of an emphasis on how well do we know China. I think, I think our obsession with Pakistan has made us sort of turn away from the problem slash danger slash challenge posed by Pakistan, uh, of China. Now there's a new generation of scholars kind of coming up. Deep is there, others are there who actually have done some work. We as a government need to embrace this, create facilitating conditions. We need to ensure that at least our armed forces also are able to go out outside the country to spend time in you know schools of international relations. I say this because I've had personal experience where there have been proposals for people from the Indian Armed Forces to actually attend schools of international studies and the MEA or the MOD has not approved it. For some reason, I think there is a, there's a sister service jealousy, but I think this is counterproductive. And I've, and I've had students who are PA officers. I've had students who are officers from the Japanese Armed Forces, the US Armed Forces. And I think, you know, at some point of time, if India wants to be a global growing power, then it needs to have its people grow a bigger mindset. And this idea that, you know, going outside the country to learn about India's activist policy, which better place to learn about India's activist policy than to be in Southeast Asia. Uh, so I think we need to sort of create an intellectual, uh, sort of, we, we need to change the way we think about how we think about China. And I think here's where I would lead the last point is, do we need a committee of inquiry? Not now, because now we have a crisis at the gates. We don't want the government to get distracted with a committee of inquiry. But at some point of time, all these systemic issues perhaps looks, needs a much more deeper dispassionate analysis. And I would argue based on my sort of own work is existing bureaucracies really find it hard to do so because they're too attached to the status quo. And um, again, as I said, to make an omelet, you have to break some eggs. I think we need some, at some point of time in the next two or three months, to create a committee that can look at this whole host of issues and then think about the way ahead so that we can prepare for the next challenge that comes our way from Beijing. I'll end it there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Anit, for your uh, wonderful remarks and for uh, instilling amongst all of us in the audience with uh, a number of food for thought. I'm sure there are a lot of questions that are coming up for you. Uh, well, thank you very much. I now invite uh, Ambassador Nirupama Rao to share her comments and thoughts. Madam, over to you. Uh, thank you, Simi. It's uh, wonderful to share this platform with so many eminent scholars uh, of a new generation. I belong to an older generation. I've been around uh, uh, working on China since the mid-80s, which is a long time. 
and I may sound a little dated, so you will have to cut me some slack on that count. Uh, but um, what happened in Galvan, this, the face-off and the tragic fallout of that face-off uh, on the 15th of June, has been called by many as a turning point in India-China relations. And it's called a turning point, I suppose, because it has, in a sense, uh, put paid to and uh, damaged the whole structure of relations between the two Asian giants, as it were, which had been painstakingly put together uh, from, uh, at least from 1988, when Rajiv Gandhi, our then prime minister, visited China. And Tang Xiaoping, if you remember, uh, called uh, it the Asian century in which India and China would be the main participants and that the Asian century would have little meaning if uh, these two countries did not progress and prosper and did not build good relations between themselves. Today, of course, uh, there's very little talk of that Asian century being an India-China century by the Chinese, except, of course, in occasional diplomatic bromides that uh, they issue when you have leadership level meetings, but their actions speak differently. Whatever China has seemed to do in the last few years uh, would suggest that it would like to contain uh, Indian growing power within South Asia. It would like to uh, kind, kind of checkmate our efforts to uh, to attain and uh, our aspirations to a larger role on the global stage. And of course, their relationship uh, with Pakistan has uh, been a thorn in the flesh for us. Uh, and not more than that, I would suggest in terms of national security and in terms of the defense of our borders and in terms of uh, our fight against terrorism. Uh, on various fronts, I believe that relationship has uh, begun to be more than just, uh, you know, a, 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 a trend in our neighborhood that we have to keep a watch on. Now, when you look at um, how the Chinese have reacted to the Galvan face-off, um, you will see that, um, you know, they keep talking about India having violated its commitments, that the sovereignty of the Galvan Valley has always been China's, and that uh, Indian troops have seriously violated the agreements between the two countries on border issues. So these uh, statements from China, which are fairly uh, uniform in their content and substance and really don't mince any words, the gloves are obviously off, would suggest that um, you know, the Chinese playbook is really to put us on, on watch about uh, you know, the, the situation along the line of actual control, not only in Galwan, but also in other areas. And some Chinese observers like Yun Sun of uh, the Stimson Center in Washington, in a recent article in the War on Rocks um, uh, online site, uh, talked about India's uh, you know, infrastructure arms race with China, whatever that meant, uh, because uh, just as the Chinese have improved and consolidated their infrastructure uh, capacity in, uh, on their side of the line of actual control and, uh, you know, areas leading into uh, Aksai Chin uh, from Xinjiang and also from the southern side from Tibet and nearer, you know, the petroleum points along the LAC. Similarly, I believe we, it is perfectly within our rights. We are completely justified in improving our infrastructure capacity in areas close to the line of actual control. But obviously, 
the Chinese use this as, as, uh, as a factor in the situation which uh, in their, uh, you know, interpretation or their uh, pro proclamation would suggest that has been a cause uh, for tension. Now, the, uh, the second point I'd like to make is, you know, the border, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the agreements and the protocols and the mechanisms that India and China had concluded from 1993 onwards, in 1996, in 2005, 2012, 2013, to maintain peace and tranquility in the areas along the line of actual control and to build confidence they had worked pretty well, and for 45 years, in fact, even before 1993, from 1975 onwards, um, you had not encountered a situation similar to what happened in Galvan uh, in any point across the uh, long uh, border uh, and uh, areas along the line of actual control uh, between India and China. There had been transgressions, there had been face-to-face -face confrontations, the situation in Sundarong Chu in the Tawang district of Arunachal Pradesh uh, began in 1986 and it dragged on till for about six to seven years, a biblical span as I would call it. But uh, it was diffused ultimately. In fact, uh, this, that uh, face-off actually led to Rajiv Gandhi visiting China and, uh, and then subsequently, you know, by 1993 we were talking of a regime of maintenance of peace and tranquility in the border area, areas and such principles as equality and mutual ben, uh, benefit and mutual, sorry, um, mutual security, uh, mutual and equal security. I think that's the, that's the term that we used. Uh, we were using those terms and obviously they were used with some, uh, some substance and some meaning uh, to them, not empty words, not bromides. And uh, there was also an agreement from, on the point from the part of China in the 1996 Agreement for Confidence Building Measures that the two sides, Article 10 of that agreement, talked about uh, the verification of the line of actual control between the two sides. In fact, uh, I'm just thinking, yeah, Article 10 talked of speeding up the clarification and confirmation of the line of actual control. So there was actually an understanding between the two sides that they would clarify and confirm the line of actual control. But you know, as you well know, and I think it's been mentioned many times post-Galvan, that in 2002-2003, when the two sides, when the experts sat down to exchange maps to verify the line of actual control, after doing this exercise in the central sector or middle sector, of the boundary when it came to the Western sector and the maps were exchanged, uh, the Chinese side withdrew their map in about 20 minutes uh, during that meeting and there was no further movement after that. Now why they did so, whether it was there were, there were too large uh, a gap, there was too large a gap uh, between each side's interpretation of where the line lay or whether it had something to do with um, you know, the area around Karakoram Pass uh, where the Chinese have refused really to deal with us uh, for some years now. Uh, and uh, that has a lot perhaps to do uh, with uh, the uh, so-called understandings that they've reached between, with Pakistan uh, on that side, west of the Karakoram Pass, uh, considerably west of the Karakoram Pass, where, as you know, uh, Pakistan ceded, illegally ceded territory to China in the Sino-Pak boundary agreement of 1963. 
So uh, the uh, agreement to clarify the line of actual control really did not get anywhere. And uh, as you can see, it has the, the differences uh, that have cropped up along the LAC uh, really point to the lack of uh, or, the, or the inability of the two sides to jointly clarify this line and to confirm it. Uh, whatever you may say of, about pockets of differences along the LAC. But the fact is in Galvan, it goes a little beyond that in my view. It's not just a question of differences in perception of the LAC, because if you look at the coordinates which were uh, conveyed to the Indian side in 1960 during the official talks between the governments of India and the PRC, uh, we had three rounds of talks, as you know, in Beijing, in Delhi, and in Yangon and each side put forward you know, their explanations of the basis for their border alignments. And the Chinese actually conveyed to us a set of coordinates about uh, where, the, where their claim line or their so-called boundary uh, was in the Galvan area. So there are actually a set of coordinates that were given. And if you plot those coordinates on the terrain today, uh, they, those coordinates render a point that is far, that is east, at least three to four kilometers east of the estuary of the Galvan River and the Shiok River, uh, where the Chinese are claiming now that uh, the LAC is actually uh, located. Now, what does it tell you then about uh, the Chinese, um, you know, uh, attitude or the Chinese approach? Uh, to the maintenance of peace and tranquility along the LAC, um, it really suggests that their so-called claim line and their uh, and thereby their interpretation of the LAC is a constantly moving interpretation, and that is an extremely worrisome factor because it really introduces a new uh, a new uh, complication, let me say, into the entire playbook of the India-China relationship. So what is to prevent the Chinese from coming forward with a new interpretation of where the LAC lies in other pockets along the LAC in the Western sector and, and, uh, and equally alarmingly in other sectors of the India-China border, whether it's the central sector, whether it's the Sikkim sector, whether it's the Eastern sector, which as you know, uh, covers Arunachal Pradesh, which the Chinese call the area of the largest dispute. And from 1985 onwards, they have been saying that India has to make concessions in this area uh, for a border settlement on the basis of which China will make what they call corresponding concessions in the Western sector of the boundary. And this was an attitude that uh, became increasingly pronounced, the salience of which was increasingly pronounced from 1985 onwards, even preceding Sundarong Chu and uh, the uh, the uh, uh, the ascent, let me say, of Arunachal Pradesh uh, to the status of a state of the Indian Union from the uh, status of a union territory. So, um, uh, so today, this is the complexity that presents itself to us. The India-China border, one, one of the longest land borders in the world, is an unsettled border. And, uh, and over the decades, uh, the situation has only grown more complicated. And it has uh, firstly to do with the attitude that the Chinese present uh, in the boundary negotiations and now with in treating the situation along the line of actual control by advancing their claims. And, and of course today, you know, knocking on everybody's door or on everybody's doorstep is this 
huge behemoth we call China today, risen, uh, uh, very different, let's say from 1988 when Rajiv Gandhi went to China and our GDPs, India's and China's were more or less at the same level. We were roughly similar countries. I recall um, caravans, I can call them caravans of Chinese experts, uh, you know, making their way to New Delhi, saying that we would like to study how you do your audits and accounts. We would like to study what your space program is. We would like to study how your civil service is organized. We want to study your agricultural sector. And I, I still remember, you know, I'm old enough to remember that. And I see, uh, you know, where they are today. They've obviously made great strides and won, uh, let's be frank, the admiration of the world in the process. But Side by side, you know, they've abandoned, as you all know, the 24-character uh, diktat of Deng Xiaoping. And uh, Xi Jinping's China is really, uh, you know, talking about uh, China becoming number one, uh, China being unrelenting about uh, safeguarding and uh, advancing its territorial claims. You see that in the East China Sea, the South China Sea. And now you see that uh, on the land border uh, with with India. So it's a very bloated sense of self that China has today. And we had to really, um, you know, deal with that and uh, craft a strategy that is, that is able to uh, safeguard our interests and also to leverage the equities and the advantages that we have in the region with our friends and partners in order to create, let us say, some degree of resistance firm resistance, resolute resistance uh, to uh, the advances made by China. I agree that, you know, uh, conflict with China, war with China, uh, you know, prolonged and protracted contest and confrontation with China may not be the best solution for India today. And uh, uh, we, have, uh, we have our uh, tasks cut out for us in terms of the transformation of India within. And of course, uh, ensuring a good external balance for us without, you know, so that, uh, I mean, externally, uh, maybe I need to explain that unless it might get misunderstood otherwise. So, um, so this is where we, we stand. And uh, what do we want? Uh, you know, the question is often, often asked. And before I do that, I wrote briefly uh, some time ago about what are the sources of Chinese conduct in Ladakh today? Now, one, of course, they want, uh, you know, to uh, advance their claims and to, um, you know, overlook our strategic assets, uh, especially uh, given the fact that Leh, the capital of Ladakh, is so much in the vicinity of these areas that, you know, have now come under threat uh, by increased activity from China. Secondly, of course, the, a lot of people have spoken about the reorganization of Jammu and Kashmir uh, following the revocation of Article 370 by the government of India in early August 2019, and the, and the kind of Chinese protest that that occasion that was occasioned as a result. Now, we have of course told the Chinese there is really no change as far as the external boundaries of uh, the region are concerned and that we have not sought in any way to change the status quo as far as dealing with China on these issues is concerned. But they have read the whole reinterpretation, obviously, uh, in their own calculus, in their own you know, scale of, uh, of how to react to these, to these events. And I think the linkage with Pakistan comes in particularly. It stares us in the face here. Uh, 
because the reorganization uh, of uh, the, the erstwhile state of Jammu and Kashmir into the Union territories of Jammu and Kashmir and the Union territory of Ladakh. And if you look now at the, at the map um, of, uh, you know, the northernmost part of India, uh, you see that the, uh, the Union territory of Ladakh occupies a huge area. In fact, the district of Leh today is the second largest district in India after Kutch in Gujarat, uh, it, I think, uh, you know, it's about 45,110 square kilometers, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, it includes, um, you know, it, it, it includes um, the areas of Gilgit, Gilgit, Wazarat, Chilhas, and tribal territory, as we defined it in 1947, in addition to the remaining areas of the Leh and Ladakh districts of 1947, after cutting out Kargil, after the carving out of the Kargil, district. So obviously, you know, Ladakh has become, uh, you know, uh, essentially our um, external, um, you know, uh, let's say on the front line in many ways, uh, with China, as far as Aksai Chin is concerned, and of course, with Pakistan occupied areas, as far as Gilgit Baltistan and those areas, uh, you know, contiguous areas are concerned. And Gilgit Baltistan, of course, is the, that part uh, of uh, Pakistan-occupied Kashmir, that to which uh, the CPEC, uh, earlier the Karakoram Highway, which China built, uh, runs. And uh, therefore, there is a China connection there. And of course, you have Aksai Chin. And I, st I still remember from the late 80s, when Sundarong Chu was, uh, you know, troubling the relationship, one of the Chinese diplomats uh, telling us in, you know, we had a lot of heated exchanges, I remember at that time, talking about Aksai Chin and saying, you know, as far as Aksai Chin is concerned, you know, you can say, you can say goodbye to Aksai Chin. That, that's not for, that's not on the negotiating table, really speaking. You know, tempers were very high and, you know, words sometimes exchanged at these, these, on these occasions uh, can, you know, can be very weighted. And in many senses, they can symbolize what is the hidden, you know, attitude or agenda of the other side. And I still, it's very ingrained in my memory, uh, you know, that particular, that particular statement. So, uh, you know, obviously some complication has arisen. I, I am not, you know, swallowing any Chinese line uh, on this, but I'm trying to interpret what the Chinese uh, conveyed to us in 2019. And, um, and the fact today is that as far as China and Pakistan are concerned, uh, you know, the, uh, the alignment between these two countries and the concordance of interest, uh, even strategic interest, uh, as expressed through the infrastructure buildup uh, in occupied Kashmir and uh, the uh, Pakistan-occupied Kashmir, and also, you know, the way... Uh, Pakistan has, uh, China has got Pakistan's back, as it were, on so many issues, whether it's the NSG, whether it's Masood Azhar, uh, you know, uh, China is really Pakistan's iron brother, as it were. And uh, so the question mark, question that arises is if there is contest, confrontation, conflict between India and China in the Western sector, what is, uh, you know, what is China, what are China and Pakistan what, are, what tricks do they have up their sleeve, literally? So we have to be concerned about it because China, to my mind, is walking an increasingly fine line on the India-Pakistan issue. So let's not 
And let's not whistle to keep our courage high. I don't think whistling to keep our courage high is going to work here. We have to take very, very hard-nosed and very clear-eyed, uh, clear-headed clear uh, uh, analyses we need of how to proceed uh, with the situation ahead. I think the Doklam playbook, you know, we stood up to the, we should continue to stand up to China. I don't deny that. We have to be resolute. We have to be firm. But in Doklam, what happened in 2017, exactly three years ago, uh, you know, after that 73-day standoff uh, concluded and uh, both sides agreed to disengage, I think the takeaway from that was that we had stood up to the Chinese and they couldn't, you know, uh, follow up on their agenda of coercive diplomacy with India because we stood up to them and there, there were lessons to be learned from that. But, you know, the Doklan standoff was relatively contained. It took place in a third country. It was in Bhutan. And, you know, from both India and China's part, I think, you know, uh, you know there were lots of eggshells that we were treading on, strategic eggshells, let me say. And... Uh, they, we disengaged, we did show uh, a very firm front to China, and China's coercion did not work. But um, China must have retreated, I think, um, on, totally unhappy, I think, with the, with the way things went. And we were, of course, relieved that uh, the tensions had been had de-escalated and the, the, the crisis had been dealt with in, with, with, uh, with uh, conclusions that were very much, I think, uh, to our satisfaction. But that playbook, whether it, Chinese playbook, whether it really applies now in the case of our border or our LA LAC, uh, we cannot be too sanguine about this because it's three years down the line and China is even more emboldened in a coronavirus situation. I think there's a lot of, as I said, a bloated sense of self, of hypernationalism, and, uh, and you know, uh, very, uh, some people call it avant-garde nationalism. There's no kind of, no other kind of, and no other country really has that kind of, uh, you know, nationalism that the Chinese are displaying. And um, I think on issues of territory all across the board, I think we are dealing with a country that is increasingly unrelenting and uh, doesn't play by any rules. So, so we're really uh, dealing with with some kind of a. Uh, you know, and, uh, and, and there's a, there's a, it's like, you know, an outlaw riding into town at high noon in one of those old cowboy movies, you know, the, uh, you know, throwing open the saloon door, shooting down everybody and saying, you know, I'm here and you deal with me. So I think we have to be worried about it and we have to look at how we can build a stronger external balance with our friends and partners. I'm not saying we need the United States or the Japanese fighting side by side with us, but I think we need to improve our defense capability, our infrastructure, and um, I think uh, we should, you know, more military exercises that show that are a show of strength in bring in the Australians, bring in the Japanese, bring in the Americans. Uh, we already have the Quad. And uh, I think we have to be less subtle and less uh, hesitant about proclaiming where our interests lie and where our alignments are. Um, it's not that we are going to build alliances, but yes, alignments, yes, we can afford to build multiple alignments. And uh, similarly with Russia, let's not discard that relationship. I think it still has many advantages inbuilt for us. 
and Russia is a friend of China and India. So I think it occupies a privileged position in that sense. So let's not uh, disregard that relationship. I'm going to stop here because I realize that there should be time for questions and answers. And I believe uh, Dr. Arjun Kumar is also here, so he may want to speak. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ambassador Rao. It is always a delight and a pleasure to listen to you and uh, your uh, expertise and your experience totally adds up to the entire uh, value of the discussion. So I'm sure the audience is loving the, the program. So thank you again. So uh, what I'll do now is uh, we'll just um, give a few minutes in case uh, among the panelists, if anybody would like to post questions or comments uh, to one another, uh, if that is uh, there, or we can just move on to the um, uh, question answers where we have a few sets, um, a couple of sets in fact, of questions and then they are coming on here on the chat box as well. So anybody who would like to, uh, anybody in the panel, anybody who would like to ask questions to one another? I have a question. Yes. I'm going to take advantage of this ambassador and ask you this question. Um, um, which is about the whole ITBP on the LSE border. Right? I mean, there's this, uh, there have been kind of complaints from people in the armed forces that having the ITBP deployed there, but under the MO, under the MHA, it creates too many institutions and too many organizations in charge. So there is the, the MEA through the China Study Group that works with the military, the ITBP through the MHA. That now I'm sure they all have but there have been these complaints that the ITBP has its kind of headquarters at Srinagar. They have an advanced kind of, so it it creates so-called dissonance. Were you aware of any such discussion of why shouldn't the LAC be given to the army? Or, or was there ever a demand from the army side of, you know, give us the LAC? Thank you. Thank you, Anit. Uh, not to my knowledge, at least not in my time uh, when I used to attend meetings. Um, but let me say that uh, I have the highest respect both for the Army and the ITPP. And the ITPP, uh, you know, the knowledge uh, and of the terrain and uh, just the intimate knowledge of the mountains and, uh, you know, the fact that they've been policing this frontier uh, from, uh, you know, before, uh, the before the 1962 operations. And uh, going back to the history of what happened in, in, on the Konka Pass, as you know, in October 1959. And, so that's the genesis. And I've dealt with so many commandants of the ITBP who just kind of just, um, you know, you get gobsmacked literally by their knowledge and just the intimate details that they possess about uh, the border areas. So I think that's a national asset that we shouldn't discard at all. And um, I think the Army and the ITBP have worked well with each other. And uh, I, if there are, you know, uh, certain areas which can be improved in terms of coordination and uh, you know interoperability, then look at it, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Is my view. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Uh, does anyone else have a question on the panel to your fellow panelists? Okay. So yeah, I... um, yeah please go ahead. 
another question for Ambassador Rao. Um, I'd be curious, given given your experience on kind of the front line with these negotiations over the past two, three decades, have you seen any aspects of um, either the 22 rounds of talks or um, those particularly around the, the 93, 96, 2012, and, and so forth, um, declarations, uh, any particular aspects um, that seem to, to work particularly well uh, in terms of um, generating, I, I guess, bringing the Chinese closer to, uh, to a response? Are there, uh, are there any sort of historical nuggets of, of hope in this process that, that you think might be effective moving forward? Thank you. Um, well, talking of historical nuggets of hope, uh, I, uh, my recollection goes back to uh, the, uh, the uh, period in the relationship immediately after the Rajiv Gandhi visit of 1988, uh, where I think, um, you know, the, the, the level of trust, uh, if one can call it that, however modest it might have been, was much more uh, tangible than it was, uh, let's say, in after, let's say, uh, our nuclear tests of 1998, when, you know, there was a little period of estrangement and then we got back, uh, got the relationship back on the rails. But I seriously think that period between 1988 to 1992, 1993, when we signed the Order Peace and Tranquility Agreement, the first one, I think that was some kind of a uh, uh, a period in, in relations between the two countries, certainly not a Hindi-Chini-Bhai-Bhai kind of uh, phase, uh, not at all. Uh, we had come through, uh, we had been seared by the experience of 1962, and I remember how much soul-searching it took for Rajiv Gandhi to make that visit, because there was a lot of political opposition to uh, having a summit-level uh, visit to China. And uh, so once that visit had succeeded to some extent in clearing the atmosphere, especially at the time when Sundarong too had, had escalated tension between the two countries. So the gains from that visit were considerable. And uh, that enabled us, I think, to move forward with the setting up of the joint working group on the boundary question. And, uh, and then ultimately uh, to the border peace and tranquility agreement. So that was, I think, uh, a good phase in the relationship where we were pragmatic, we were realistic. Uh, there was no, um, uh, no dreaminess about anybody's approach. And, uh, but unfortunately, I don't think we were able to build, even though we set up the special representatives mechanism and from 2003 onwards, uh, you know, we began to have those meetings of the special representatives. And after the 2005 agreement on guiding principles and political parameters for a settlement of the boundary question, which again was another uh, watershed in the relationship, uh, for want of a better term, I'd say watershed. And, uh, but post that, I think we've again, you know, it's slowed down and it's kind of, uh, you know, wheels grinding in the mud, literally, you know, how do we, how do we get the traction to move forward? I think that's... Thank you, ma'am. Thank you so much. Deep, do you have a question or can we continue? No, no, I'm good. I'm good. We can continue. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Okay. 
so uh, now we uh, come to the question and answers uh, round and uh, we'll do it in such a way that uh, uh, these have been uh, sent to us via email and uh, uh, we have uh, taken the liberty to identify respective panelists with the questions and uh, i'll first uh, uh, read out the questions and then uh, in that very order i would uh, request the panelists to answer so the questions would be posed first so uh, this is a question to ambassador rao that uh, is there a lack of political will in china and india to solve this border issue is there any prospect of change in the direction from the wolf warrior diplomacy towards a more conciliatory approach if there would be a change in the chinese leadership um, second question is to uh, dr ani Uh, is there a possibility that uh, the ongoing border dispute uh, are a handiwork of china and pakistan to destabilize uh, and uh, eventually to take over some more parts of uh, india uh, the next question is to uh, dr b uh, it comes from george washington university uh, there has been uh, enormous media coverage uh, yeah i'll just repeat uh, there has been enormous media coverage in india and less in china if we compare on the ongoing border dispute added to this is the enormous rising indian nationalism however the indian government seems to exhibit restraints and wants a diplomatic solution do you think that the modi government is hijacked by the indian nationalist media and the indian military which wants to use the crisis to raise their defense budget and uh, the final question is to kaili that uh, since 2017 with its indo-pacific strategy the us government is actively seeking cooperation with india with this ongoing border dispute will this push india towards more toward uh, push india more towards the us side in fact ambassador alice wells has already uh, gone on record to affirm the us commitment to stand with india in pushing back the chinese army and to protect india's sovereignty Uh, in fact three american aircraft carrier strike groups um, to have already been flown down to the indo pacific so your comments on this uh, so over to you ambassador rao if you could begin i think the first question was about whether the leaders of both countries had the political will uh, to resolve uh, the boundary question and the problems uh, between the two sides um well for the last uh, couple of decades uh, our leaders have met uh, regularly there's been a systemic uh, you know approach uh, to leadership level contacts uh, that we witnessed in the relationship the growth of a strategic uh, partnership for peace and prosperity between the two countries so at least um, on the surface political will has been expressed by both sides uh, that uh, india and china being two large asian countries Uh, with four fifths of the world's population between them, that they need to settle their problems because world peace and and well-being and uh, progress and development depends on that. But the actions that you've seen in Galwan over the last uh, few days and the way the Chinese are, the kind of profile and the face that they are showing us in these areas would kind of. Uh, you know they cast a shadow let's say on the relationship on mutual confidence on mutual trust which is at almost at zero level today and that definitely has an impact on um, 
political will also, I mean, just to pick up the pieces from Galvang is going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight. But I think the fact that the diplomatic channel between the two countries continues to function would, would give some, some hope that uh, we can de-escalate, that you know, tension can be reduced, and that we can get back to the drawing board on how to resolve the problems between the two countries. But it's not going to be easy. The present mood, especially the public mood, is also very, very um, you know, uh, exacerbated in many ways. It's uh, angry and the alarm has been sounded. So it will take a little time, I think, to bring the relationship back to the ways. But without political will, we can't solve this. And I think uh, given the fact that um, the government of Prime Minister Modi enjoys such an overwhelming majority uh, in, uh, on the political stage in India, and also in terms of popularity and in terms of acceptance uh, by the people of India, I think um, uh, you know Prime Minister Modi is very well positioned to take bold decisions to settle the border between India and China. It will involve some degree of mutual adjustment and mutual concession. There's no doubt about it. No negotiation can succeed. But it takes two hands to clap, as the Chinese saying goes. And uh, what is President Xi Jinping's attitude to this? I mean, uh, you have a very hyper-nationalist leader there who tends to look inward, who is, a, you know, there's a lot of, uh, lot of, you know, addressing the galleries on these issues. But, um, but the fact that, you know, the news coverage in China after Galvan, although, you know, the Global Times and others are very shrill in their comment, but by and large, within China, I think they've tried to contain the levels of alarm and levels of concern as far as the Chinese people are concerned. You know, the Economist wrote recently how the police guard outside the Indian embassy in Beijing is just the same as before, four or five policemen outside the Indian embassy. There's no, uh, no, uh, uh, no sense that you're getting that something has gone wrong with the relationship between India and China. So there's an attempt to downplay this in, in China. Uh, what does it mean, uh, you know, does it just uh, is part and parcel of their very uh, very controlling, the very controlling way in which they handle news coverage uh, of sensitive issues, uh, the way the Chinese regime handles it? Or does it mean that they're still keeping a door open uh, to, uh, to negotiation and to uh, diffusing uh, the situation with India? I mean, the jury's out on it. So that's the question on political will. But wolf warriors, I think, um, you know, that is the face of Chinese diplomacy. But, you know, I recall, and Daniel Markey cited this in his recent book on China's Western Horizon. He says, Chuenlai defined Chinese diplomats as members of a culturally armed People's Liberation Army. So, uh, you know, that's what they are. They're soft on, they said, he said, diplomats should be soft on the outside and hard on the inside, armed with an understanding of culture and possessing loyalty to the country as well as an absolute discipline. I mean, all diplomats should be soft on the outside and hard on the outside. I think it applies to diplomats of all nationalities. But the other part about them being members of a culturally armed People's Liberation Army, I think essentially sums up what wolf warriors uh, are, are like uh, like today. So, so it's basically. I think there was a there was a piece I think written uh, written in 1995 by a Chinese um, 
analyst uh, and uh, you know it's not my language so i'll read it out to screw foreigners is patriotic uh, that seems to be the bottom line thank you sure thank you ma'am uh, thank you uh, anit would you like to go thanks Amy. i was asked whether this is a handiwork of pakistan and china to take over parts of the park so far i've not seen evidence of a conspiracy where they are working an active concerted efforts to create a clash i think the chinese were as surprised with the events of june 15th and didn't actually expect such a strong indian reaction even a strong indian deployment in fact they've been a, a bit upset and a little taken aback at how we have responded to their change of the status quo um i would have if this was a concerted effort, then I wouldn't have seen that element. Um, if war breaks out, then anything is on the table. So should it be a cause of alarm? I don't think we are there yet. Um, but is it completely um, out of the realm of possibility? No. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Anita. Uh, Deep, if you would like to go. Yeah, uh, quickly, Simi. So, mm -hmm. so the question says that if this is an attempt by the military and who else to to raise their budget, mm -hmm. the last part of the military and yes. it, it mentions the military and who else? Uh, no, uh, for the military which wants to uh, raise, uh, who wants to use the crisis to raise their defense budget, mm -hmm. and whether the nationalist media is trying to hijack uh, the government of India's policy of restraint. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to take this question in two parts. The first part is about uh, media coverage in the two countries and and mm -hmm. hyper nationalism in Indian media. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to argue that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, just as uh, so in in India when we see a number of hyper nationalist media outlets or media outlets generally cover this in a hyper nationalist way, and we don't see that happen in, in China that necessarily to me tells that uh, there is perhaps a greater degree of control on the Chinese media that the Chinese government has, which the Indian government does not have on the Indian media, right? And that suggests not only what they cover, but also what they do not cover, right? So, so to see that the, the media has hijacked the issue, I think is is not fair, is not ingenious. Can the media coverage improve, be more factual, be less hyperbole? Absolutely, there is no doubt about that. But, but to say that it has been hijacked by them is possibly not the fairest way of looking at this. The environment, at least in India politically, has, been, uh, has allowed more nationalism over the last few years. And uh, this is a reflection of that uh, charged nationalistic environment, the way you see this issue being covered. That's, that's the first one. As far as uh, whether this has been hijacked by the military to raise their budget, I, I again, I, I don't think, um, I, I haven't seen any evidence that that would suggest that Anit is uh, uh, plugged on far more into, into uh, the military uh, uh, people. I mean, he might have views about this, but nothing I have seen uh, seems to suggest that that is the case. Also, I'm not very certain if, if this is how um, uh, the, the military in India, India works. I mean, there has been some literature that has that has talked about uh, how the Indian military uh, stayed away from being politicized uh, uh, since the early days uh, after independence. Um, unlike 
uh, unlike how the military has been politicized in some of our neighboring countries or some post-colonial Asian countries, etc. Um, though, though certain aspects of the military have been possibly politicized in recent years, I still don't think it's gotten to a point where, where they can independently operate to the point of hijacking this and, and create a situation like we are seeing right now uh, with the purpose of, of uh, raising their budget. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Deep. Uh, Kylie, are you there? Yeah, so on. Yes, on yes, Kylie, please. About, uh, US India relations, I think there's no doubt that over not just uh, the current US administration, but really over the past uh, 20 years, um, our relationship has, has grown much closer. Uh, I think this is true of both defense and uh, and and trade more broadly. Trade since uh, over the last 20 years has grown tenfold. Uh, and despite trade tensions, the you know when we zoom out, the uh, the trajectory is 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 very much a positive one. And that's also true of of our strategic relationship, um, both as Ambassador Rao mentioned uh, in the context of the Quad. Um, but also bilaterally. And, um, and I would note, uh, just in terms of the Quad, that just a few weeks ago, India signed a comprehensive strategic partnership with Australia. And, and I think there's, there's very, little, very little doubt that, um, that India <clears throat> is, um, is strengthening ties, uh, both with the US and, and other uh, partners around the region. <clears throat> that said, I think it's also important, and again, to echo a point that Ambassador Rao made, um, that India also has close relationships with Russia, um, particularly in, in terms of uh, defense. Uh, I, 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 I'm not sure of the exact figure, but I think uh, the majority of, of um, India's uh, defense um, uh, spendings and weapons and so forth uh, still comes from Russia. And, and while, it's, while it's not necessarily a Cold War era, policy of non-alignment, um, I think there, there's no doubt that India will continue to, um, you know, be an independent, uh, uh, an independent player when it comes to uh, its, its own strategic interests um, and drawing both on the US, uh, Russia and, and, other, uh, and other nations as needed. Sure, thank you. Thank you, Kylie. Uh, so, uh, with this, we come to the second set of questions and we go in the similar order. Um, this question is to Ambassador Rao. Uh, you know, uh, you, uh, the border dispute comes um, as a very severe setback to the Sino-Indian relations, which you have also mentioned previously. Uh, but not very long back, in October 2019, the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi hosted the Chinese President Xi Jinping for an uh, informal summit at the ancient historic city of Mamalapuram. Uh, here, the two leaders had actually agreed to deepen their contacts at the highest level to guide the future trajectory of India-China relationship. So does these Chinese uh, misdemeanors at the border, um, at the LSE precisely, come as a root shock to India's diplomatic efforts? In fact, the year 2020 was designated as the year of India-China cultural and people-to-people -people exchanges to mark the 70 years of diplomatic relations between India and China. 
your comments on that madam uh, the next question uh, is to uh, dr ani uh, is china in all its notoriety risking this misadventure because of india's repeated commitment to the uh, panchil agreement in other words uh, is china correct or is it mistaken in its assessment that india would not use its military might simply because it is of no match to theirs or have they forgotten india's surgical strike against pakistan if the chinese have mistaken india's patience as its complacency what are the risks that uh, it has misjudged uh, the next question is to uh, dr deep uh, both on the indian and the chinese sides there have been uh, casualties so but uh, the question is um, there are uh, contradicting claims uh, from the indian and the chinese side the indian ministry of external affairs has officially stated that the chinese side took a premeditated and planned action that was directly responsible for uh, this uh, bloody skirmish and uh, but the chinese side blames uh, indians uh, for uh, beginning this conflict so uh, who is right and given that um, india is uh, you know long drawn battling its uh, biggest health crisis at the origins of which of course is china itself so um, who does the galwan valley actually belong to and uh, the next question is to uh, kylie uh, uh, there has been uh, if you would have been observing uh, the india's uh, neighborhood uh, pakistan bangladesh yeah, and even myanmar they all have uh, uh, demonstrated affinity to china uh, because of the economic aid infrastructure development military assistance um, or being an all weather friend uh, or the guardian at the un security council when cases of human rights violations or allegations of sponsoring terrorism comes up for discussion so uh, your uh, comments on that Uh, simply because uh, india has recently been elected as a non permanent member uh, at the un security council for two years so uh, what are the odds for india to navigate through this at the most powerful un agency or un organ uh, with the caveat that uh, the weaknesses of powers of being a non permanent member so uh, over to you uh, ambassador rao Well, I think this question more or less covers what I uh, had answered yes. the first question. So I don't want to repeat myself, but I think it's too important a relationship in India's and China's relationship to be thrown away. I mean, as some suggested, Pakistan Galwan was an unmitigated tragedy, but um, uh, we have uh, we have to look to what happens in the future in this relationship. Do we want conflict? Do we want tension uh, you know both countries have to act in a mature and grown up fashion and to sort sort out their problems we have to study closely what went wrong in galwan and make sure that we don't have a repeat of such tragedies again we have to deescalate and i think uh, we have to damp down emotional reactions and hysterical responses to all that has happened we have to, as i said earlier be clear headed and cool and rational about how we move forward um yeah, the informal summits uh, that mr modi and mr xi jinping had in wuhan and in mamalapuram uh, they did serve their purpose informal summits of course are an, are a very uh, 
in, a, in not an unconventional way in diplomacy for leaders to reach out and, and create uh, good communication and a level of confidence uh, and uh, ease of communication. So we shouldn't, uh, uh, you know, uh, completely uh, sort of say that it didn't work. The relationship has underlying complexities and complications that that predate uh, any contemporary efforts that we are making. As you said, it's 70 years since we established diplomatic relations between the two countries, you know. Um, but don't forget what uh, Jawaharlal Nehru said in 1952 when he was uh, briefing or talking to the first Indian cultural delegation that was going to China. And he said that the challenge between India and China or the, you know, the, the the kind of um, when two countries come up against each other like this, that challenge runs across the spine of Asia. And, you know, we often accuse Mr. Nehru of, uh, of being soft on China, but I think deep down he understood, you know, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, the inherent complexities in this relationship. So we have to keep that in mind. We can't, uh, as I said, uh, forget that. But uh, communication has to be maintained nonetheless. Uh, you know, we may not be friends, we are adversaries. Now we call, you know, I, use, I hear the word even enemy being used uh, against China, but, but um, diplomacy essentially is about finding middle ground and trying to reduce tensions. And because that works for the benefit of the country to reduce those tensions. War or conflict will not work to our benefit. Uh, thank you, ma'am. So, uh, if if all the panelists agree, can we go on till uh, another twenty minutes uh, with this set of questions and uh, uh, the vote of thanks? Is it okay? Yeah. Okay. Great. So, uh, yes, Doctor Anil, over to you. Thank you. Um, so, I was asked about the question of whether China has forgotten. Uri strikes and has um, underestimated India. I don't know anything about Chinese motivations, right? Or their analysis of uh, what was India thinking. I won't know anything about that. Uh, but I do think that it might have made a misjudgment with changing the status quo as it has done, right? Um, I do think that there has, that, the, that perhaps either they did not think this through or the other conclusion, and so this is an unanticipated crisis. They did not think that it would become such a big deal, that people might die on the border and that might, it might create such an anti-Chinese feeling among the Indian people and that it might be an inadvertent watershed. So that's one, um, one kind of line of thinking. Or they actually anticipated that India would do the thing it would do, but it didn't care. Right? It just did not care what would the Indians kind of respond because they were confident enough that they would be able to take on any Indian action. Um, in some ways, both these conclusions are a little kind of off this topic. The first, because it is misjudging India, so it does not understand India too well. The second, because if that conclusion is true, then um, it is just, um, as was said by Ambassador Rao, it's been the cowboy who enters the saloon and starts shooting and is very brazen about a challenge. Um, and I think uh, they're both a little kind of troubling to me. Thank you. 
Thank you, uh, Deep. Right. So the question about uh, the contradictory claims, right? Uh, uh, India is saying that this was a premeditated attack from Chinese side, and China says the other thing. Now, and 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 connected to it, who does Galwan Valley really belong to? So, as Ambassador uh, uh, mentioned in her uh, presentation earlier in the report of the officials of the 1961 conversation, we hear that the coordinates that were given out by the Chinese side, by the Chinese officials, about where their claim lines lie. When you input them in the topography now, you find that they are uh, further east, three to four miles further east to what they are claiming right now. So I think that by itself answers who does Galwan Valley belong to. They are right now trying to push into territory that even they did not uh, claim in 1961 and uh, are now uh, they are now trying to say that no, this is what we had claimed. This is what 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 we said is ours in 61, which. As we can see, documents prove otherwise. That's the first part of the uh, thing. The second part is when you look at the kind of claims and counterclaims that are being made on both sides, one aspect of it is that obviously we will, in, in, when, when the two armies are standing eyeball to eyeball uh, uh, across the LOC, you will not find either side backing out at this point and saying that, okay, it was our fault, we didn't do it, uh, you know, you were right. So, so that's one part of it. But the question, the real question that you need to ask at this point is, why is it that uh, it is China who seems to have questions or problems with territoriality with, with all its uh, neighbors? I mean, you look at the South China Sea, you look at the East China Sea, you look at uh, India. Why is it that everywhere they have to come and say, say that, oh, we are the victims, we were sitting peacefully and out of the blue, everyone else, why is it that everyone else seems to have it out for China? I think that's a larger question that, that we need to, to find the answer to or look for the answer to, to, to understand uh, what, what kind of a, of a narrative uh, China wants to create about itself, both for its domestic audience. Please understand that it's not just for the external audience, it's not just for the world. It is also important for China to come across as a, as a, as a victim. It's, it's a strange kind of duality. On one hand, they want to say that we are so powerful, we have arrived, we are ready to lead the world, and therefore, you know, the space that the US vacates should be ours. At the same time, they want to say, oh, look at us, we are the victim and, and everyone is, is after us. It's a strange kind of duality that, that is at the core of, of how China sees itself. Thank you, Deep. Thank you. Uh, Kylie? I, I, I'll pick up um, where, where Deep left off uh, yes. in, terms of, uh, in terms of relations with neighbors. You know, it strikes me that there's actually kind of an interesting parallel uh, between the at least um, India's relations with the permanent members of the uh, the UN Security Council and India's relations with its neighbors um, in SARC uh, in particular, um, there's you know there there's one fairly hostile neighbor that is Pakistan, um, but uh, apart from from Pakistan, uh, India enjoys. Um, good relations uh, with with its South Asian neighbors, and I think is really seen as a um, you know as as the the, the regional anchor. Um, I think that also uh, means that there's opportunities uh, for that relationship to sour, and I think that uh, that um, I think should should be seen as pushing India to to be a good neighbor uh, and to push back against some of those. Um, uh, some of those inroads um, that are that China has been making economically and in some cases uh, infrastructurally. 
Um, in terms of the UN Security Council, again, India enjoys good relations with the permanent members, uh, save one, China. Um, and I think uh, that the same cannot be said for China. Um, and I think that is uh, you know, a potential uh, area of, of strength when it comes to, uh, to India's position going in uh, as a non-permanent member. I think there's, there's uh, an opportunity to showcase uh, the, the, the fruits of its diplomacy. Um, and, and I think that's a space where, um, where India really can have an advantage. Now, both in terms of the UN Security Council and SARC, uh, I think that there's also you know, a point that needs to be made about the, uh, the efficacy of these institutions. And it's not always the case that either uh, the UN, uh, the Security Council in particular, or more generally, um, or SARC have been used effectively. But there, there, there are examples of, of um, times when they have been really, really effectively uh, used for, for diplomatic ends. And so I think there's, there's some opportunities there for India. Thank you, Kylie. Thank you. Uh, so um, this is the end of second round. And uh, before we move on to the uh, vote of thanks, formal vote of thanks, uh, there's one very popular question uh, which has been coming up. Uh, that, uh, And uh, I would like any of the panelists to take it up. That there has been a public outcry in India to ban the use of Chinese goods, and also and has also been supported by both members of the opposition as well as members of the ruling party. However, given the fact that China is India's biggest source of imports, with um, the former having a trade surplus of over fifty billion dollars uh, with India, what feasible steps can India take? to keep out Chinese manufacturers while simultaneously conforming to the rules of the World Trade Organization? And can India really contemplate and implement an economic response against the Chinese misdemeanors along the line of actual control? So uh, if uh, Ambassador Rao could take it up first, and then uh, uh, Anit. And uh, Deep, I think he has uh, just suffered a power cut, but he's joining us soon. So, Ambassador Rao? Uh, well, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm back. Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, I can, uh, I mean, it's understandable the level of public anger and concern about what has happened. But, um, you know, as I wrote recently uh, for the uh, Mint newspaper, cutting the Gordian knot, as it were, uh, with China, given the scale of our import from that country and the levels of Chinese investment uh, is not um, uh, as easy as you contemplate it to be or you think it to be. You've heard, you've seen reports about uh, certain, uh, you know, important imports being held up at Chennai port because uh, the customs was asking questions about, uh, you know, these consignments and the drug and pharmaceutical manufacturers have been pointing to the need uh, for uh, early clearance of some of these imports because they are needed, especially in the time of COVID. As you know, China is a source for active pharmaceutical ingredients that we import for a lot of our medicines. So I think we have to make our choices and our determinations uh, based on what we need, not what the Chinese need, but I don't think we should cut our nose to spite our face, you know, at this time. 
uh, we should take these decisions carefully. Where we don't need certain Chinese imports, definitely we can do away with them. And in areas of uh, where security implications are there, where national security is involved, as in telecommunications, you've seen on the 4G issue and on 5G trials, there's already talk. I mean, I believe the government is already taking steps to, uh, to rule out the participation of companies like Huawei. Um, but, um, uh, but in other areas, uh, you know, there are questions of contracts, there are questions of agreements reached. Uh, we have to, of course, uh, play uh, this whole thing very, very carefully. But ultimately, you know, at a, in a time uh, when such tensions occur between countries, it's obvious that we would like to leverage some of our economic assets in a way that, visibly uh, China, that is, that that uh, convey very clearly uh, our concerns. Uh, but remember that China is a source of a very small, uh, China, China, India is a very small destination for Chinese exports. It's about 3%, I think, of Chinese exports. Whereas 14%, I believe, of our imports come from China. And investment from Chinese companies in some key uh, technology startups and in infrastructure, in manufacturing, in real estate, all that. And China has come into almost every part of our society in the last few, uh, few years. Uh, so it, what I'm saying is that even though we may be doing these things with the best of intentions, uh, it's not as easy as it seems, you know, just to cut off ties summarily uh, with China. Thank you. Anit, would you like to uh, make a response to this? No, I would agree completely along sure. with Ambassador Rao. I think uh, we should be careful about this. We should yeah. think about a dispassionate look at the cost and effort analysis. I'm not an economist, but we shouldn't do this emotional knee jerk or shut down on trade. Thank you. Sure, sure, sure. Deep, your response? Yeah. Uh, Absolutely, I, I agree with, uh, with with what Ambassador Rao said completely, and and what Anit reiterated. <clears throat> Just a couple of quick points. One is that there needs to be some kind of a separation of what is what we consider strategic and what we don't consider strategic. That is that is something. If that is not a conversation, or the, if that, this is not something that has happened within the various ministries of the department, now is something. Now is a time when we can't avoid having this conversation anymore and making these calls. Right. Once that is done, as far as the strategic aspects are concerned. As Ambassador Rao said, you obviously have to keep Chinese companies out of it, not just for economic, but also for strategic reasons. 5G, Huawei is not something I think realistically India can consider anymore. So that is that is done. Now, as far as the non-strategic aspect is concerned, economic activity is essentially about being able to acquire or procure uh, raw materials, intermediate goods, and finished products uh, from some source or the other. Now, the issue here is that uh, India has to either be able to manufacture these things itself or find somewhere, some, some other supplier, some other country that is not China, which can do it at the same pace, at the same cost, at the same time. Now, till these are done, it is, it is, it is I, I think, um, not more than rhetorical to say that let's push China out of everything. The, these, these are very practical, valid questions that have to be thought about. And after that, if, if replacements are possible, because even if you, if, if you look at the economic figure, figures, you'll see that uh, whatever it is that we import from China, if you look at the second uh, importers, they are far, far below. So there's, there's a huge gap. So unless you can find a creative way of 
of closing that gap or you say that okay this is the economic cost that we have to uh, you know pay that india as as a country has to pay for for strategic reasons or political reasons then that's a different question but that conversation has to happen now thank you kindly would you like to respond to sound like a broken record i would agree with ambassador rao and i would add uh, two points uh, one the very obvious one that uh, geographically china and india you know are stuck where they are and uh, that produces uh, certain kinds of of realities uh, irrespective of of trade relations and the second one would be that uh, even before the crisis along the 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 line of actual control um there was the crisis of 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 covid and the crisis to um supply chains and i think that uh there there is a danger um for every country and i think i think this has become very clear in in the past few months that an overreliance on any one source uh in terms of supply chains uh can can be um very detrimental Uh, to business um so supply chain diversification whether that means shifting to greater domestic production or diversifying sources uh can can be good i mean that's irrespective of of the sort of domestic policy considerations about how to respond to china which which um i i would simply echo ambassador rao's comments on sure thank you thank you very much kaili so now we are almost towards the end of the webinar uh, i now introduce to you uh, dr arjun kumar who has been sitting through this uh, session very patiently uh, he is um, the director of impact and policy research institute uh, he holds a phd in economics from jawaharlal nehru university he is also a china india visiting scholars fellow at ashoka university and he is affiliated with the tongji university Uh, he has deep interests in international politics and he seeks to focus more on the convergences of international development with geopolitics uh, with this uh, i invite dr kumar to um, ask one last question uh, to the respected panelists and then deliver the vote of thanks dr kumar over to you and thank you thank you so much simi uh, a very exciting session uh, uh, and uh, uh, the time is uh, uh moving out but i just have one uh, question because i am also looking at, uh, at the india china relations from infrastructure and economic uh, perspective so my question is that uh, does any of the panel see for see or suggest that india joins the blue dot network or the quad we are we just discussed with australia you uh, australia japan and us especially when india has uh, not joined or are shown any interest in the bri projects and also not join the rcep uh, the regional uh, comprehensive economic uh, partnership uh, uh, through this would india's uh, uh, economics and uh, infrastructure would be jeopardized uh, so that is that is the question uh, i would urge ambassador uh, ambassador rao to take it first and also she she very uh, uh, importantly mentioned that there are uh, contentions not from now but from the last century uh, on the aspect of spine of asia and and that that is also becoming one of the core issues that is why i'm bringing this infrastructure and and the economic question uh, along with the trade one so uh, panelists please yes uh, 
thank you, uh, Dr. Uh, well, I, I just be brief. I think uh, when it comes to working with Japan and like-minded democracies and our region, uh, to uh, provide uh, feasible and concrete and um, credible alternatives to the BRI uh, to our to other countries in the region, I think is is a very uh, important choice that India should make. And I believe we've already taken steps in that direction to work with uh, with our friends and partners, especially with Japan on this Africa-Asia, I think it's called Prosperity Corridor. Uh, you know, we're talking of a corridor between um, Africa, Asia, working with Japan and uh, exactly, uh, you know, uh, addressing the need that you just uh, mentioned. So that I think will, should go forward and uh, we bring us a specific set of skills to the table and our other friends and partners bring their own formidable skills uh, to the table, including the United States. And uh, we, uh, we can together, I believe, craft very, very uh, viable and uh, workable alternatives to the BRI because the BRI has already been shown up for various flaws and weaknesses. I need not go into that. But uh, you're just looking at the debt burden of some of the countries, uh, smaller countries, smaller developing countries who are involved in the BRI and the whole lack of transparency and, uh, and you know, the fact that uh, all the contracts go to Chinese companies and to Chinese. So it's a very uneven playing field. It's all about, uh, you know, uh, China uberales, as they say, China over everybody. Uh, and, you know, everybody else essentially takes a secondary position in that calculus. So, so that's, uh, that's uh, an answer to your question. The second thing, what was the second question you asked? Did you ask a second question? Uh, or was it just this? No, just related with this. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Dr. Anit. Thank you. Uh, yeah, um, Arjun. Um, I think, um, so I won't talk too much about the blue tick because I'm not really an expert on the economics of it. So I think Deep can take it on and he actually talked about the 5G and the Huawei. But I'm gonna say one thing, which is, I think this Indian straddling of strategic autonomy of we're not really in any camp, we're not going with anyone is, is actually a very cute trick, but it's not really getting us much in terms of our external balancing, right? I mean, I've heard so many of, uh, of the people who engage India, whether they're Japanese or Americans or, or Australians or others, that the Indians are very careful about not saying anything that could potentially antagonize China. And I think that has not, that has not served India's interests well. I think because there's a very clear cut, you know, if, there is any, if there's any alliance that we can call an alliance in the post-Cold War era, it's the one between China and Pakistan, right? And I think for us to like, pretend that, oh no, we are not going to, you know, call the quad a quad and we are not going to declare kind of declarations or not, you know, align our statements actually gets us the worst of both worlds, which is the Chinese editors don't believe that we are not ganging up against them because they would think it from a realist perspective. They'd say, why aren't you doing it, right? They have done it in the past. Why is India so shy to actually say that, look, we do share apprehensions about China's expansionist mindset. We are seeing it across the world. We have seen it in the South China Sea. There are countries in Southeast Asia that are concerned about it. And all they hear from the Indians are, well, we can't turn up for Shangri-La dialogue. We cannot come for this. We are, we are all under the UN flag. Well, the UN flag is decided by the P5. And guess who's a part of the P5? Not India. 
So we are basically saying our military would be deployed only when China approves it. What does that tell you about us? Right? I think we really need to get out of the straight jacket of, oh, um, you know, we should not upset the Chinese because they don't care. That's my personal opinion on this. So I think in terms of every, so it's not about putting all your eggs in one basket. It's not just about we are only going to work. We should work with anybody who shares the same interests. It's not about the country. It's basically about the alignment of interests. Whether the interests align with France or with America or with Russia at times. And I think India does expect that in the long run, the China partnership with the Moscow is actually would not, would not pan out. Um, so I think it does not serve India's interest to um, to actually play this game so cutely. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Deepal. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, quick, quick, I, short. Just, just one word. I'm listening to Anit, I'm reminded of that line from uh, Charles Dickens's David Copperfield, you know, where Clara, the character in David Copperfield, the constant um, advice to her is Clara, be firm. I think we have to do that. That applies to India too. <laughs> Uh, before I answer this, I must say I never thought that either strategic autonomy would be uh, called cute or India-China relations. The answer to India-China relations was in David Copperfield. So this has been a very enlightening session for me personally. Now going on to, to the, the question of the blue dot network, I'm going to take a, a, a 35,000 feet view like Anit did. Uh, where India is now, um, one of the major uh, policy uh, 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 steps that will have to be there going from here will involve uh, uh, external balancing, right? And whatever kind of tools that India needs to uh, employ or whatever kind of various architectures that India needs to look at uh, for this, is it is it the quad plus? Is it a military uh, uh, element to the quad? Is it the uh, blue dot network? Is it is it something else? I think all of these, it's, it's time now that we uh, approach all of these uh, uh, with a very open mind. Uh, uh, and my, my sense is that India will also find a lot of willing uh, partners or members in these architectures because as, as we were talking about earlier, there are a vast number of countries that uh, are feeling quite quite jittery about the way uh, China has been behaving in, in at least for most of this year, uh, both both in terms of the kind of uh, pin tricks and salami slicing and all of that that we are seeing, but also in terms of how uh, uh, China dealt with the entire uh, coronavirus issue, uh, misdirected, misinformed, and obfuscated initially, and then through wolf warrior diplomacy tried to make people shut up and not talk about uh, when, when they try to bring about uh, uh, when they try to pin the culpability on China. So, so I think uh, India will, uh, good policymaking would involve India looking at all of these various opportunities or options as they may present themselves. Sure. Uh, Dr. Kaili, if you'd like to make a just brief uh, uh, response. So uh, that we I can would, just, uh, yeah. I would, I would only, um, you know, echo uh, Deep's last point that I think this is uh, there. There are potentially effective multilateral institutions that have been developed that can can be used and and leveraged for for India's strategic and economic interests. And I think that there's um, 
particularly given, uh, I think, rising uh, uh, assertiveness on the part of on the part of China, um, and and the kind of global response that, um, particularly from democratic countries, that that it, it received. I think I think now is a particularly good time for India to take advantage of these of these multilateral institutions. Um, I think the Blue Dot Network, the Quad, these are obvious, obviously good ones. And, and as I mentioned earlier with the strategic partnership um, signed with, with Australia, I think you know, it's clear that India is to some extent already, already taking these steps. Thank you. Thank you all respected panelists. Uh, Arjun, if you'd like to just uh, deliver the vote of thanks briefly, and then we'll yeah, it's yes, yes, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for uh, a very interesting and enlightening session uh, on, on today's panel discussion, and uh, which we extended for uh, almost more than half an hour. Uh, I thank all of you for being part of our international webinar on border disputes in Sino-Indian relations, past, present, and prospect. I would like to thank our panelists, uh, Ambassador Nirupam Rao. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, Dr. Uh, Anit Mukherjee. Thank you, sir. Dr. Deep Pal, thank you. And uh, uh, most of, uh, importantly, Dr. Kyle Gardner, who has uh, joined from US on the first day of the week, very early in the morning. Uh, I would also like to take this opportunity to, to thank uh, Sigur Center for Asian Studies at uh, George Washington University at Washington DC. And, and also its director, Professor Benjamin Hopkins, uh, for, uh, uh, for this unwavering uh, support in, in this, in this uh, collaborative exercise. Uh, it has been uh, uh, very enlightening uh, holding this discussion. And uh, I would just like to uh, conclude uh, by saying that uh, the relation of India and China uh, dates back to uh, uh, two centuries, uh, at least before, uh, before BC, uh, before Christ. And uh, India, China, both the countries have ancient civilization. Uh, both are largest developing countries and also are emerging economies. And uh, their relation, India's and China's relation, is also relevant for regional and global uh, significance and strategy and how we move forward in this century. Uh, this century is, uh, as also our panelists highlighted, uh, China is saying it's China's century. Uh, uh, the world has also acknowledged that it's century of Asia. And so how we are moving in this relation about our, about our friendship, about our mutual increased mutual cooperation and, ex and, and expanding our cooperation uh, based on the values of also from you know our uh, father of, uh, uh, of India, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, holding these values of peace and nonviolence. And uh, lastly, I would say that uh, uh, we pray for well-being and progress of India and China, uh, their friendship and health and happiness of uh, everyone around the globe. Uh, thank you. Have a, have a very nice evening. Yeah, so thank you, Dr. Kumar. Before we uh, sign off, can I just request uh, all the panelists to turn on their uh, videos so that I can take a quick uh, screenshot as a group photograph? Yeah. One, two, three, go. One, two, three, go. Thank you so much. Thank you and have a very good evening. Thank you all for your patience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.